Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. We're talking about films in the Berlin Film Festival. You guessed it. And we've talked about almost all of the prize winners, actually. And we're going to try to get in a couple more, but also see if there are some off the beaten path for this episode. I'm very pleased to be joined by Ella Bittencourt. Welcome back, Ella. I think it's been, I want to say, almost last summer since uh, we've, we've chatted on the podcast. Wow. No, that's that's a long time. Definitely. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Nick, for having me on the podcast. You've been keeping very busy covering the festival for Mubi. I see you've been kind of racking up reviews there. Have you filed everything or, or do you still have a few that you have to uh, knock out? Um, I hope so. I mean, I'm still hoping to get to Avi Mograbi because I think that's a documentary filmmaker, Israeli documentary filmmaker that I've been following for some time. And I think it's important to write about his latest documentary. But I think after that, I'll be done. Yeah. There was one more jewel film that I got to see in Berlinale Forum Expanded. It's by uh, filmmaker Cynthia Beat with um, Heinz Emigholz. So I'm hoping that that will also go up on site. And then I'm really done. <laughs> oh, yeah. Heinz, Heinz Emigholz. He had a film last year, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, this particular short, actually, it was really interesting because it's uh, it was the only film, I think, across Forum and Forum Expanded that's a restoration. It's a film from 1983. And it's actually film um, about and around Berlin. And Heinz Emigholz is starring in it. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty riveting short, and I think pretty much like my favorite film of the festival. So, oh, good. Well, <laughs> glad we snuck that one in. Uh, well, you heard it here first. Um, well, we were just going over the movies that we've seen, and I mean, I realized that there's definitely a movie that some people were looking forward to. Even I think is extremely interesting and entrancing, and also very strange. And I would say annoying in a good way, which I'll, I'll explain. <laughs> um, the movie is The Girl and the Spider. I don't know if you want to take a try at describing its quantum universe that it has. Yeah, I was trying to write down a summary for myself and noticing how hard it is to write a summary. But if I was going to boil it down, um, essentially, we have a young German woman, Lisa, who's moving out of her apartment, moving into another apartment and who's leaving behind her roommate, Mara. And Lisa and Mara seem to have this very mysterious, complex relationship with their roommates. But um, Mara is also clearly riveted with Lisa. And so there's there's a lot of unspoken emotion going on. And meanwhile, Lisa is also having a very complex relationship with her mom, who's helping in the move. And this is a highly choreographed movie. And so there's a whole subset of other characters who kind of come and go on the scene because we have people taking things out of the apartment, helping out, uh, putting things on the truck. And, and there's just this whole, whole constant movement in these two spaces and occasionally in the street. And, and I guess if I was going to kind of thematically say what's going on, I mean, there's this wonderful metaphor at the end of the, of the film where the the narrator that's a voice of like someone who used to live in the same space 
with um, Mara and, and I guess before Mara and Lisa lived there and played the piano and she's now crew on a cruise I guess working as a waitress on a cruise and blah 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 but we hear her voice at the end and she says she has this lyrical moment when she talks about magnetism of things the constant magnetism and I guess if I were to think of how this whole film operates there's this constant magnetism between things and people magnetism in the sense of like positive positive charge you know negative positive I mean this constant drawing in and and repulsion but it happens all in these very tiny beats where it's not like a huge narrative arc it's more kind of moment to moment magnetism does that resonate Nick? Yeah, it. I think that's a really interesting way of talking about it because, especially when I think about, you know, when you take two magnets and you put the opposite ends, and there's this weird force that you can feel repelling. I feel like there's constantly in this movie where two people are having some sort of exchange. You know, they're either they're looking at each other or they're saying like a couple of cryptic lines to each other, and you're just trying to figure out which way the attraction or the repulsion is going, uh, what the subtext is and what the currents are. And I mean, at, at the risk of making this sound like a science experiment, <laughs> this is a movie where it's like they took out all the actual dramatic scenes and replaced it all with like glances and and then also just cast these actors who have these enigmatic smiles. And, and also about half of them have like like saucer sized eyes where they're just constantly I felt like all these close-ups so you just have this the highest amount of like meaningful glances going on that you could possibly have and it just makes for a very charged atmosphere that doesn't feel like it's camp at all either I don't know how it even manages that I don't know I felt like it was capturing like a particular kind of relation I don't know I don't want to gender it but I feel like there's a particular type of eloquence or intensity to a lot of the glances and yeah. um, how observant people are that somehow felt keyed into the, the women involved in, in the story, which is, as you said, uh, Lisa and Mara, and also a mother, uh, Lisa's mother who's there, um, and then a neighbor. And, and it's kind of wonderful, right? Because there's also, I mean, there's that uh, girl child on the scene and and there are scenes with her as well. She, I guess she's a daughter of an of a downstairs or upstairs neighbor. And she kind of just strolls into this apartment as they're moving. And she's also always observing and kind of taking people in and trying to read them and almost hold them with her glance. I don't know. There's this, it's very interesting because some of the dialogue is very, as you said, I mean, it takes out the sense of like the biggest scenes have been taken out. And so the dialogue is very oblique. I mean, sometimes it can create this kind of distance and sometimes it's quite cutting, right? Because part of the, the relationship of Mara and Lisa is very bruising. And uh, there's, there's a huge part of the relationship of Lisa and her mom that ends up also being very bruising. So there's, there's some like real scarring there, but at the same time, the way these people are constantly trying to read each other and are smiling at each other. I mean, this sense of like this rapturous reading of the atmosphere. So, yeah, what you're saying makes sense. What did you find frustrating at times? I'm curious. I don't know if I was frustrated with the filmmaking itself. I think just the people, the characters are a little mm -hmm. 
uh, a little frustrating just because they they seem to have these like insider joke jokiness the way they mm-hmm. have of relating i mean they have these kind of inside jokes that that they refer to um mara is you know i mean she often has this strange like mona lisa kind of smile and then we'll say like mm-hmm. this most cutting thing <laughs> just kind of maintaining this kind of smile um and i don't know she also tries to pour coffee on a dog yeah no that didn't that didn't register very well i mean she has this sense of mischief and i mean it's wonderful i i saw i thought that maybe her sense of mischief kind of relates to this whole universe because at the beginning of the movie you have this map of the apartment that mara prints out for lisa and it's this very clean you know i don't know architectural drawing where you just see where the bedroom is and the toilet you know like if you were renting out an apartment you have that and then eventually it gets like filled up with doodles but then mara talks about that moment where it got all scrambled on the computer and there's this wonderful sense with it of something very, very orderly becoming totally chaotic and messed up. And almost the entire character of Mara really reads to me like that, that she just has these instances of just like chaos. And I don't know how that's connected to the spider, the girl and the spider. What did you make of the spider? First, I, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. There is, she's, you know, upset about whatever sense of order she had um, that's been upturned somehow. I guess th- that could be, that could be kind of part of it. Is, I mean, in a way, she had her kind of web, or you know, that, and it's also this notion of the threads that connect us. Um, and there's something uh, beautiful, but also maybe a little um, entangling uh, about those connections. Yeah, that's true. And then there is an actual spider that is in the movie. And you have this great scene where Mara like finds a spider on Lisa's back and then kind of they transfer the spider between the two of them. And it's just this remarkable little moment of just kind of happenstance. Oh, that's lovely. I mean, the way the relationships between these people are like a web and they're all kind of connected, the way they're connected by this weird magnetism, they are all in this kind of intricate web. But in, and you're right. I mean, it is in so many ways about letting go, right? Because at the end or somewhere in there, when Mara talks about how she, how she found the, the presence of the spider so comforting in her room as a child, but then the spider was gone and only the web remained. And then even that was gone. So I think that has a lot to do with Lisa moving out. And you can see it again in the character of the mother who also has to process the thing that her girl is like has moved on from the family nest and you know and now is moving on to other stages of of life so there's a lot of letting go i mean i i agree with you that there were these little moments that these characters they're they're so quickly attracted and so quickly repulsed that there's something almost like fable like about it it's just like little princess for a you know glances magically at little prince and magic sparkles but it, it, and it gets undone so quickly that it sometimes it, it kind of throws you off that that there's a very unique rhythm in this film but i was very surprised by how kind of melancholy and sadness of having to let go actually registers at the end like that they're able to wrap it up and that you do feel some kind of connection it's hard to do and yeah and also i mean this is one of those films where you're not 
even when you're not entirely sure that you're buying into every single scene or that you're understanding the relationships, the the way of that they put this together, I mean, this constant flow and movement, the sheer beauty of the blocking and the way they weave this kind of waltz music in there. Yeah. That's kind of like melancholic, very elevating. They're just, oh, the way they have of zooming in on objects and kind of expanding kind of these movable pieces of people and objects. I mean, it's all very beautiful. I mean, it's just so enjoyable, no? It is. And I think it's actually, I admired their previous feature, which I think was their first feature, mm-hmm. you know, which was constructed in a sort of similar way. You're sort of watching, um, I don't know, the kind of machine of life as, as kind of things fly around. But this one just has these fascinating and entrancing emotional currents to it that I didn't feel in that earlier feature. It might sound like a strange comparison, but I actually at one point was trying to think like, where have I felt this kind of thing before? And I, I almost felt it like in a Fassbender movie. It was one of, like one of those Fassbender movies where like there's a bunch of people in the room ensemble of people and there's just these cross currents and something is happening you don't know what and that that ability to suspend that feeling uh, and just hold on to it i don't know somehow that came to mind and and the fact that that they have all these stories they're constantly telling or referring to i thought that was something kind of nice you know it's like remember when this remember when that Mm -hmm. um so there's any given interaction is just layered with all these past references and stories and, and memories that might might come up at any given time I just, yeah, I just think it's another step forward for Ramon and Sylvan Zürcher because both of their movies are fascinated by just the idea of proximity. But whereas the first one felt a bit more antiseptic, uh, this feature, it really goes somewhere with that. Just like all the weirdness and wonder of people sharing the same space, uh, whatever their, their relation uh, is. Yeah, and they're always on this precipice of what exactly is happening anything could happen is it going to happen or i don't know there's this charge between the some of the relationships that um that sometimes can feel very cold because there's this sense for example when mara and lisa's neighbor i guess old neighbor who ends up having an affair with a boy who's really into mara and so on but then after their kind of one night romance passes him on kind of to her to her roommate. I mean, so some of those relationships can feel a little cold, but at the same time, there's a sense of, I don't know, that magic could happen between these characters anytime. Yeah. And and just to pick up the fable feel that you mentioned, the other character in the movie who kind of picks up this hapless, I think he's the son of the son of the builder who's helping them. Yes, right. He kind of ping pongs into into her room. She turns into like this sleeping princess character, like through this kind of hilarious persona they they put on her as someone who sleeps during the day and only wakes up to go to the to the gym, uh, which becomes a pretty funny routine. You might have seen in a stand up routine or something. I, I thought it was pretty funny. She talks about just having to stare at someone while you're doing a particular routine, and you get like. Yeah. <laughs> And at the same time, I mean, Mara as a character, when she talks to that boy, the the builder's son, she kind of mocks this idea of this fairy tale kind of romance, you know, and happily ever after. So it's interesting how on one hand, we're being given these little stories that feel like fables. And on the other hand, there's something very wistful 
of Mara's attitudes towards these kinds of stories. I mean, she's 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 a pretty in, interesting character overall, in that sense. And the coldness you'd mentioned, I also saw what Lisa says to her mother. You know, I never thought of you as my mother. Mm-hmm. And I mean, her mother is just you know stopped cold by that. And it's a weird moment because it seems to come like directly after her mother is sort of flirting with the builder. So I didn't know how to read that. It's because there's kind of a free and easy atmosphere there. But when that happens, that's Lisa does not approve of that for some reason. Well, it's charged in that way. I mean, it's interesting because somewhere in there, they introduce this color yellow as the color of jealousy. And that is the shirt that Lisa wears in that opening scene. And I I guess it's one of the things that they want to kind of weave in there. And Lisa is very controlling of her mother. I mean, the sense of like some kind of attention that she seems not to have gotten and also the fact that like the father is out of the picture and I understood that the parents are no longer together and that there's a lot of kind of tension there and so Lisa in this very bizarre way seems to be kind of almost controlling her mother's desire yeah yeah I I sort of felt that as well that's why I'm really glad we were able to talk about it because it's a movie that you can kind of keep on unpacking for for like an hour or so it's interesting you thought Fassbender and I kept thinking Chekhov because I feel like in Chekhov people are always falling for the wrong person you know and they kind of and then they spend supercharged nights trying to talk it out and then the morning comes and this kind of I don't know wistfulness and bleakness sets in so that's great I think that's that's right on that's right right on I mean that really does that also I think captures some of the mordant humor that's involved that that is almost on the edge of being like you know, over the top, like Masha in the seagull or something, but is, isn't yeah. quite there. Uh, so again, that's The Girl and the Spider. I mean, I have to say, that I, I was a movie I kind of wished had been recognized with some award. Uh, not that that always means something, but I, I just really felt like it was such a distinctive movie and definitely on par. But one movie that did take an award is Natural Light by the director Dennis Naj. I mean, I guess from the the usual kind of main narrative of World War II, it's a slice of the war that I don't think many people are really aware of. And please correct me if I'm getting this uh, getting this wrong, but it's basically about uh, the Hungarian army, some division of the Hungarian army, where their job is. I mean, after the Nazis have invaded. Uh, the Hungarian army, I guess, is pressed into service to patrol part of Soviet territory, I guess. So that's part of it. And then the the particular story we're following is through the perspective of sort of a sergeant or something in in the army as they're patrolling these just completely woebegone uh, forests. Any moviegoer will recognize from like Tarkovsky's Ivan's Childhood or something like that, mm-hmm. or, you know, Alan Klimov's Come and See just these desolate, out-of-the-way places with villagers who look like they, I won't say happily, but have just been busily going about their business of surviving for a hundred years. And then here comes the latest army to give them grief. And that's kind of what happens. And our perspective is, again, you know, this one guy who is kind of the, a conscience, uh, the conscience of this, this particular division of the army, because uh, he watches everything with a pretty just has this kind of wounded, skeptical, fatalistic eye uh, looking on things, you know, maybe trying to step in when, when he can uh, to kind of make something happen in a slightly less atrocious way. 
and that's kind of how the 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 action of the movie unfolds because absolutely uh, atrocious things do happen that's the general outline of the movie other thing that springs to mind is that it's all the cinematography is bordering on kind of ethereal in the beauty of the forest and the kind of fine-grained detail of people's uniforms it's almost that's more palpable than any particular uh, performance what did you think of natural light it was a hard film for me to get through maybe you know, as someone who was born in Eastern Europe, and obviously, you know, World War II is such a big part of your imagination growing up there. Although I think you're absolutely right, Nick. I don't think that that part of um, Hungary actually being on the side of the Nazis until 1944, and therefore entering Soviet Union and, you know, and being the occupier along with Hitler. I don't think that that part of the history is particularly explored. And you can see why I don't think Hungarian textbooks or are particularly keen on overemphasizing it. And I absolutely I understand why that film must feel very necessary in the context of Eastern Europe, because I think that you know, this kind of selling of the war as patriotic and selling the mem- the heroic memory of World War II is very much what a lot of these populist governments are doing these days. And, and that includes Poland and that includes Hungary. And I'm also sure it includes a number of other governments. So I think it's as kind of an opposite, you know, the other side of the coin. I think filmmakers are increasingly taking it upon themselves to kind of sabotage this this icon making this kind of blowing up of war heroism as you know as essentialist to our patriotic nationalist outlook i think even uh beanpole actually that was another film that where a young filmmaker went ahead and made a movie because he wants to kind of push away this idea that there's anything heroic about war or anything glorious about it and there's that there's anything to gain by glorifying or somehow propagating the the heroism of war. So I see why this film is is necessary. But I have to say that like on the level of story, I struggled a little bit with this character. I mean, I'd like to know what you thought. But for me, it felt like him being a cipher was in a way necessary. It was a, it was a fine line of how we're supposed to read this character that's kind of not there. And I understood that part of that is the filmmaker's very clear decision precisely because he's thinking of predecessors like Tarkovsky's, even Ivan's childhood or Alan Klimov's Come and See, which in many ways are very hallucinatory movies. I'm also thinking of Shapitko's Ascent which is yet another amazing Russian World War II movie. They all have something very stark and hallucinatory to it. And here there's a clear directorial decision to tone it down. And that also is done with the character himself. But he he remained kind of opaque to me and sort of going about your business while while being the conscience there but I was never he was hard for me to read he was hard for me to follow I wonder what you thought of that I had a similar reaction I think I mean I because it's the same thing I can kind of recognize what uh, the filmmaker is doing with that character and even just on a screenwriting level why the character exists because I mean one alternative to making this movie is just showing the horrible things the army is doing, but not having that point of view to filter it through, which 
you know, would be a tough movie to to watch. But yeah, it's it's a gamble. And I mean, I don't want to single the guy out, but I don't always know that this particular actor felt like he could carry that weight for the entire movie. He has this face kind of carved from stone. You know, he has the <laughs> he has yeah. these kind of worry lines in his face so it's it's very striking the first time you see it you know around about the ninth tenth eleventh or twelfth close-up on his face as he's keeping absolutely stoic in front of you know either what a commander is just ordering him to do or seeing you know farmers he knows is going to have to is going to be killed or something it keeps going back to that well for emotion but i just don't always think it's it's always there you know, in that regard, like just not to throw like all these filmmakers names into the mix, but like another Hungarian filmmaker comes to mind, uh, Miklos Yangso, just because, you know, he made these really elaborately choreographed movies, which also were often pretty stoic and also were often telling these arcane, I mean, from an outside perspective, pretty arcane chapters in Hungarian history. So, I mean, I almost wonder if that's part of the inspiration. And I, again, I kind of applaud that because trying to find some slice of history that you can, you can tell and bring to light is, I, I think, is very often an interesting and useful endeavor. And I think you're absolutely right. Thanks for describing the kind of state of affairs in, in a lot of countries in Eastern Europe where filmmakers are trying to kind of reckon with history as the latest generation and to try to tell some kind of truth about it. I mean, I, for some reason, I... I thought of, I mean, I interviewed the director of Son of Soul, and obviously that's that's a movie that is about the Nazi camps, but when he talked about it with, with me, you know, he said like, gosh, you know, I go, he didn't say gosh, I mean, he would never say gosh, I don't know why I said that. He told a story about going on a Hungarian talk show, and he said that when he was talking about his new film, he felt like they just didn't want to hear it at a certain point. Like, they're like, yeah, yeah, all right, yes, we get it, World War II. Uh, Holocaust. Okay, that's sort of enough. Um, and just the fact that he, I think that sort of reaction to any airing of the absolutely abysmal parts of history, that people would still be impatient with having to hear that. You know, I completely understand <laughs> wanting to tell stories, uh, these stories, and, and go into them. No, and 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 and, and I absolutely appreciate that, that in the Eastern European context, I think, or um, Central European as well, that there's a huge pushback and at the same time a huge urgency because so much of that history also was buried for so long. You know, there were, I mean, certainly in Poland there was there was all kinds of historical things that were buried until 1989. So maybe looking back from that perspective, some of that feels quite fresh, but it's, it's hard. I mean, I would imagine it's extremely hard for a filmmaker to take up that topic and for it not to just kind of come out as a kind of mea culpa. Like, how do you get away from that? How do you, how do you make, you know, a certain, add a certain sense of urgency? I think what I also struggled with is that to be honest, they had, there had been so many crimes across Eastern Europe that were perpetrated exactly in that way. And there had been film films made about that. So the minute, for example, the, the population of this village is rounded into a barn, what is going to happen next is almost a given in narrative sense. And it's exactly what happens in the film. And so I, I don't know, I just, in, in the sheer sense of history repeats itself or history repeats itself tragically or across Eastern Europe in a very similar way, I think that also posits a problem for the screenplay. 
you know, how illuminating the screenplay can actually feel at the end of the day. I, I mean, I had seen Come and See, I guess, relatively recently. And so that was still very fresh in my mind. And this movie, I, I mean, most movies would suffer from the comparison to the intensity um, and originality of Come and See. Uh, so, yeah, when the barn enters the picture, they, yeah, there's that awful inevitability that you know what's going to happen and it has that strange effect of almost you know kind of uh, dulling or kind of numbing your your reaction uh, in a way and I don't know how to get around that and to a certain extent this movie is kind of taking a prestige route which is in its impeccable cinematography you know it has this very sinister opening that could be like out of some sort of slow burn thriller or something of like a boat going down Mm -hmm. a river. Uh, I don't know what else, because in some ways it is obviously the work of like a very capable and potentially interesting filmmaker. I, um, again, if only because I, I was interested in this eye of conscience that he has. Mm, Yeah. I think maybe since you're, you kind of left with the sense that a war will crush even a decent man. It, there's something oddly reconciliatory about that message that somehow depoliticizes the whole thing and, and kind of, I think, takes out an edge of it. But uh, like you said, I, I think that this is um, an enormously talented filmmaker, a beautifully shot film with a very clear vision of, I think, or at least some kind of rationale behind why it's being shot this particular way. So there's a, there's a lot of positive things to say about it. Yeah. I'm going to seize upon what you just said, because I think that's actually connects us with another movie uh, that we uh, were planning to talk about. The movie Azor, which is also a debut feature and completely different circumstances, completely different uh, part of history. Also a period drama, though, but it's set, I think, I want to say the late 70s, early 80s. I'm not exactly sure. I was trying to figure out from the size of the lapels, uh, and the particular political circumstances. Set in Argentina, it is about a Swiss private banker. He like works for a bank that pushes around the money for millionaires around the world with the personal service uh, that these uh, customers have come to expect. And apparently he is on a trip to Argentina, and we sort of clue in very slowly into what's going on. One of his partners in the firm has disappeared or has been disappeared, and it's not quite sure why. He seems to have been kind of like a wild, a kind of loose cannon guy with unorthodox uh, methods, uh, although we don't really learn for a while exactly what that means. And it's left to this banker who seems a little bit out of his depth, out of his element. Even people he meets tell him that. And he just is making the rounds, visiting all the clients of his disgracefully disappeared partner and trying to reestablish or kind of mollify these clients. It's a wonderful film to talk about because there's there's so much to recommend it for. And I'm honestly actually not sure where I stand. I mean, it's clearly a promising debut by a first-time filmmaker, Andreas Fontana. I think, again, for with me, a lot of the problem with me uh, with this film had a little bit to do with uh, context, because in Latin American history, it's a pretty known fact that some big 
Western companies, including European, including American companies, were very much helping to raise funds for a sponsor and organize logistics for behind the coups once they took place, including, you know, resources for capturing people and torturing people and so on and so on. So given that that's a known fact, it's a little hard to see how the buildup of this grand mystery is any surprise. I don't know if if you know what I mean, Nick, but it's just kind of, it's a given that we're in the Joseph Conrad territory. Hmm. And so it's a little bit hard to feel like this is a fully successful suspense film. I almost felt by the time we got to the end and we discovered what's the big dark thing that he's going to do, I just thought, oh, that's all they're going to do because I kind of expected that they might have been involved in much darker things, which would have made much more sense given that um, there's a comparison and description made to Roberto Bolaño, which is very much, you know, one of his books is about this idea of how you kind of know that there are dark things and tortures happening, but you don't acknowledge it. So I don't know. It was, again, for, uh, for me, I mean, it's a wonderfully acted film and maybe we could talk about that because that's definitely one part that I enjoyed very much. I mean, the actor who's playing Swiss banker and who's just kind of oozing discomfort and decency, but it's also clear that if he needed to go a certain way, he'll just do what he needs to do. I mean, that's all beautifully written, wonderfully acted. I absolutely adore the performance of, I think it's Stephanie Clore, right, who's playing the wife. I thought that her role there is just kind of acting wifey when she needs to, being his kind of personal coach and psychiatrist and motivator when she needs to, being a strategist when she needs to. I mean, all of that is also wonderfully written. So that whole setup of, and the execution of how, you know, these, the Swiss couple ends up in this world that they can't read and are constantly navigating. That's really fantastically done, I have to say. I think for me, it was just that, that there's this gotcha suspense buildup that there wasn't really much suspense for me, particularly. I mean, at first, I, I really agree about the acting. I think it's this movie lives or dies on the acting because, you know, what you're pointing out about about the story, that it, it can't really be ramping up to some grand reveal because, yeah, it's it's sort of apparent from history what <laughs> what is really taking place. So it's entirely on the shoulders of all the actors. And I just think basically to an actor, the, the, the performances are, are outstanding. I mean, as, as good as any movie I can remember, they capture a particular diplomatic register, a, the way you kind of imagine uh, moneyed classes discussing and planning and, and the kind of politeness and slights. But without it being so much dramatized or being the stuff of, of the drama, it, I think it's, it's almost a miniature this film in the sense that it really wants to get a detailed, fine-grained sense of that dialogue, the kind of give and take without having like smackdowns or something, you know, or like any number of TV serials uh, where you're seeing things unfold. Um, You're really just seeing this diplomatic dance between the actors. And again, that works or doesn't work uh, depending on, on, on the actors. And, you know, I also think of like one of the businessmen, his wife, she's pretty superb as you can almost feel like her character like receding into the past or like there's some changing of the guard going on 
then everyone is holding their cards close to their vest because they, they don't want to get on the wrong side of the rising military di- dictatorship. You mentioned how suspense doesn't really work because we kind of know where this is going. And unless they're suddenly going to reveal that he's going to become like Rasputin, if you know anything about the history of, <laughs> I don't know, Northern Hemispheric involvement with uh, Latin American politics, this is not news in that sense. I, I Somehow I was more just fascinated by the world it, it was detailing with such, I thought, sensitivity without being at all impressed by it, really. It just kind of struck that particular balance for me. I mean, it's what's wonderfully done uh, in it is that there's this idea behind it that evil isn't, you know, written large with a capital E. In fact, that it also happened in this very prosaic, transactional way in these very genteel environments, right? Which, which I think this is kind of, and, and this goes back to how natural light is done as well, that it could happen, that it builds up, that it reveals itself only little by little, that somehow you've got this character who's, um, you know, profoundly decent and supposedly trying to do the right thing, although you could argue with that. And, and only later it, it builds up to this bigger reveal. Yeah. I mean, I think this guy, this banker guy, he's probably pretty used to keeping people's secrets and playing things uh, as fast and loose as he needs to. He hasn't quite grappled with the magnitude uh, and, and the evilness of the secrets that he would have to take on <laughs> entirely. But that itself felt like a little bit of a genteel take on <laughs> this kind of Western participation on, in, uh, in what went on. I don't know. It's, it's almost like giving this guy too much of a pass from my point of view. But I understand. I mean, I, I, I read some critics who were saying that that's what's fascinating about the film because it resists judging. It resists kind of, it just wants you to enter this very nebulous atmosphere uh, with cocktails and horses and whatnot and to be more in this very television way be entranced by it and only every once in a while to to get this kind of darkness creep in so i'm, I'm intrigued that this is co-written by mariano linas i would love to know more about his participation on this script because in many ways it doesn't feel like his writing at all i don't know what do you think that's an interesting question i mean i I think there's a, under the surface, there's a certain delight that's being taken in portraying all of this. Not that it's condoning any of it, but I think there is a delight in like portraying this underbelly and this kind of insider view of, of a certain slice of upper class behavior that I, seems within, uh, within his realm of, of interest uh, of just kind of being uh, the kind of urbane critic of it a little bit. Maybe we should say that Mariano Linas also appears mustachioed in one of the scenes, <laughs> which is delightful. Oh, yeah, that's right. He has one scene at the bar with some kind of a big watch and, you know, as this kind of moneyed protagonist who's unnamed part of the inner circle. So I think that was Mariano's personal dig. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can sort of leave it at that with Azor. Which it's one of those like you learn what what the title uh, means it refers to. I, I I thought it had something to do with offshore bank accounts, but uh, it's not quite that. It's part of this jargon or handshake language. I don't know. In the movie, they perfectly describe the way people in this business kind of will look away, uh, hold their nose while they're dealing with something, and look away. So yeah, so that's Azor Azor. 
There was one movie I just wanted to hear from from you about because I, you know, I read your review on Mubi about it. So I'm really curious if you could talk a bit about Tsarevna scaling. Yeah, it played in the forum section and it's by the Russian artist Uldus Bakhtuzina, which I had never seen her work before. What to say about it? I mean, it's got, we talked a lot about fables today, and I feel like it's it's got this very strong fable feel. So the story is that there's this girl selling fish out of a food truck, and she is unable to sleep, and she's given this potion or this herbal tea by some old lady, and she falls asleep. And when she wakes up, she's kind of transported into this hallucination other world that is meanwhile announced to her through the television that now she can participate in this very special contest. She's been chosen to participate in this contest of whether she can prove that she's good enough to also be at Sarevna. And Sarevna, I guess in Russian, would be literally the Tsar's daughter. And so she enters this world. But from the beginning... I think this film, I mean, it's got these very outrageous costumes that for some reason I associate with Matthew Barney, you know, just this kind of artistic outlandishness and building your own world. And the way she does it, there's something very super outdated about it. Like you're in Soviet Union in the 80s. There are all these like catalog cards and these very bureaucratic looking prices. But sometimes she's also at a palace because she's being tested to be at Sarevna. And there's a certain ideal of beauty, of course, for that. So she gets all powdered up and, you know, she's being tested all the time. And that feels, those bits feel very kind of feminist. But she's always looking towards, I think, this kind of broader political or social critique as well. The way Russia has remade itself into this kind of technocrat culture and oil rich culture where you know there's this disjunction between the rich and the poor and the social media is creating this constant myth of you know specialdom which is what Sarevna is about and of course that's kind of universal because that's not Russia as well that's social media across so I, I just the way she's having fun with this where you're a little bit, I mean, I also mentioned Sokoro Faust. I don't know why that came up for me. I think because some of the costuming and headpieces, um, the remix of this kind of historical royal costume with outrageous sneakers and postmodern footwear and whatnot. Beautiful stuff. And at some point, there are all these old kind of frail Sarevnas that I guess made it and that are testing her and she's offered an apple to bite, which of course is, you know, a whole other biblical, whatever fable stuff. And unclear whether she actually makes it or doesn't. Just a super fun, supercharged film that runs wild on its imagination that I loved. I mean, I'm really hoping to see more from this artist. Yeah, it sounded wonderfully out- outlandish. Yeah, like some Ul- Ulrika Ottinger, you know, Fantasia or something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And at the same time with a real kind of sarcastic, you know, very contemporary music video kind of postmodern aesthetic pop. I'll repeat her name. Uldus Bakhtiozina. 
I hope it'll travel because sometimes we're worried that we see things. And uh, but since she's, she's a visual artist, so I'm also hoping that like if she doesn't reemerge, if this doesn't reemerge at a film festival, maybe there'll be other contexts. I mean, I have to say it made me also very curious because it made it seem like the art scene in Russia at the moment must be super interesting. You know, and, and, and I kept thinking of Pussy Riot and the kind of work that they've been doing, the staging between artistic action and political action. I mean, there, there was a lot of that kind of energy in this film. That definitely does sound, sound interesting. And also, I mean, I always have to think it's also a whole other thing when this kind of art that's, you know, outrageous and at all dealing with Russian history, there is also always a risk when you're creating this, that someone will not approve of it in some way. Yeah, you're absolutely someone. I mean, and also because when you're talking about Sarevna and when you're talking about Tsar, I mean, it's so obvious that she's thinking of a particular figure as well, right? And in, in contemporary Russian context. So she's not only doing a historical film, but, you know, the way that, you know, Putin is known to appear with like, you know, children and there's this whole kind of cultivation of Putin youth and children looking up to him and whatnot, you know, him being the big daddy of the nation, you know, it's pretty clear that she's also running away with that. Yeah. Well, so uh, that again was uh, Sarevna scaling. I think that can bring us to the end of our conversation about Berlinale titles. As I said, I really hope these movies make their way out into the world so everyone who's listening can can see them. But uh, Ella, do you have any final thoughts or anything? Just um, that I hear theaters are opening. They're not opening in Sao Paulo or anywhere near where I am, but I guess they're opening uh, in New York and a few other places. Correct me if I'm wrong, Nick. Is that true? It is true. I, I I have read I've read as much, although I have not yet participated in these openings. I have not gone into these indoor uh, spaces yet. I do know of people going to see movies in the old way that used to happen. I, I remember once upon a time, uh, movies used to be projected onto screens that you know, often could be <laughs> as big as the side yeah. of a wall. Um, and the room would be totally dark, uh, and there would be strangers, like not even people you knew. Uh, you'd be surrounded by strangers. I don't know. I'm curious to, it's going to be kind of retro. Yeah. Well, I only mention it in the, in the spirit of hopefulness, because I think that this Berlinale, I mean, it, it was enormously gratifying. And in some ways, you know, we were all delighted to watch it in, online, and, but also obviously looking forward to festivals reviving and regardless of whether we're ready to run out to the theater tomorrow you know vaccines are coming and so we'll be we'll be ready soon enough yes absolutely i mean it is a sign yeah it's a sign of of hope it's not going to happen all at once and i do hope that this is a summer that feels like a good release for people um, as, as people get vaccines um, and i also hope that the theater is uh you know open in, in sao paulo by you as as well is there a particular theater there that that is one of your favorites that you, you look forward to seeing i mean there are some that unfortunately have closed for good so i guess that's bad that's really bad news for us i mean and there was some talk of revival of certain theaters that I would love to see in the centro, like the center, the old downtown. That would have been remarkable. There's Bellas Artes for, by me, though, that's been doing, you know, like outdoor screenings 
And I even think that they have tried to reopen. It's just that we got locked down again. So yeah, I think if we could get back to those, that'd be fantastic. But here's to, you know, here's to Berlinale and really to Berlin and the audiences that, you know, hopefully enjoy these films for real in, in June, I guess. And we'll report back so that, you know, we who've watched it online can also get some sense of what that energy was like. And, and obviously films register so differently when you're in the movie theater with others. Um, I've seen filmmakers comment about that a lot, that this is the kind of feedback that they always look for. So I think it, that the summer will, will definitely bring that kind of energy when it happens. Yes. And here's to uh, a summer of, of returns to the common spaces of theaters. Well, thank you again, Ella. What am I going to watch now that I'm not watching Berlinale? That's the big question. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at rapold.substack.com. That's rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.